Welcome, my friends, to the Bob and Brad podcast, produced by Bob and Brad, the most famous physical therapist on the internet, in our opinion. I am Bob Shrub. I'm exactly one half of the Bob and Brad team. I am joined by my guest host, Michael Keenitz, who is actually part of the Bob and Brad crew, and they have a channel themselves in which they review uh, products related to your health, fitness, and overall well-being. Yes, and they do a good job. Uh, we are joined today by a special guest, and I'm going to talk a little bit about her before I reveal her name, but uh, I'm going to be fairly succinct here, um, and she doesn't like to be called an expert, but she is. Uh, if you are, have any interest in bone health, spinal health, osteoporosis, osteopenia, this is the person, uh, especially if you're looking for a kind of a non-drug related uh, approach. She has been doing this for if I tallied it right, it's 36 to 37 years. Yep. And, and she um, has also, and this must be a typo, she says she has 59 years of experience. So we'll, we'll talk to her about that. Um, she's also certified in Kripalu Yoga. Kripalu. 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 And since mm -hmm. 1984, and she's practiced yoga since 1977. So um, she, she has been diagnosed with osteoporosis herself. So that makes her an expert on that front too. She has taught the, her courses internationally. And uh, she's, I, I, I remember from years ago doing these seminars. So she's a fantastic resource. So we right, welcome to our show, Sarah Meeks. Thanks for coming to our program. Well, it's a delight to be here. And um, um, I'm not sure what to say uh, next, as uh, yeah, nice, well, you can talk nice, to. Why don't you talk nice to introduction? Yeah, why don't you I'm talk sorry? to the 59 years of experience? Oh well, the, I graduated from physical therapy school, Ithaca College, in 1962. Wow! So, and it, I've been practicing therapy all those years, and I think it's 59, something like that. Sure. I'm, yeah. Mm -hmm. So and, that's why I, I make you my hero. Because oh, anybody okay. who can continue, well, <laughs> seriously, role model, because anybody who can continue to work and contribute to mankind or womankind or all of us the way you are now, you're helping so many people, uh, I, you know, and you continue to do so. And I'm, I'm guessing you're going to do it as long as you can. Because that, oh, yes. that's, that's my hope, too. I'm so, following the footsteps of, of Florence Kendall. Thank you. Oh, she is wonderful. Yes. Yep. Yeah, she she, she worked right up and saw patients until she was 94. So I figured wow. hmm, I could do that. Yeah, Florence <laughs> that's, Kendall, that's I, my goal. I, yeah. I use her book quite often still yet. Yeah. So, all right, what, do you want to jump right into the questions? Uh -huh. Well, I just wanted to, um, uh, in terms of my experience, uh, I saw my, the, the, the 1984 comes in because that's the year that I saw my first patient with known osteoporosis and an acute compression fracture. So uh, at that point, I was about 22 years into physical therapy. Doctor called me up and said, Sarah, you're the expert in this. I'm going to turn the care of this patient over to you. I had never seen a patient like this before. So the first thing I did, of course, was review her x-ray and her medical situation. And then I got out my trusty Gray's Anatomy that I still had from PT school. And I figured that if uh, the idea in a fracture is to reduce the fracture, if you have a compression fracture, then you need to decompress it. 
So uh, my first order was to have her lie in the supine position with her bed flat, with a little pillow under her head and a, and a roll under her knees. That was about it. And um, at that point, I didn't have any research. I had nothing, no clinical guidelines or anything to go by. I kind of had to figure it out. Well, that was in the day when somebody with a compression fracture was actually admitted to a hospital. Sure. Stayed in the hospital and unheard of today, 10 days. And then we saw her as an outpatient and then I eventually visited her in her home. She returned to her previous life with no pain. And she was, I think, um, I don't remember exactly. I think she was in her late 60s, something like that. She was a grandmother driving her grandkids around to all kinds of classes and sports and things like that. She was working part-time as a bookkeeper and a full-time housekeeper. So uh, I felt that I had a great deal of success with her. And then I started looking around at my patient population and I, I saw that I was kind of tending toward geriatrics. I enjoy working with uh, excuse me here, older people. <laughs> I guess I am one now. I'm not sure. I just started looking at my patient population and their posture and different things like that. And I said, I think I might have a population here that could use some of this work. Uh, the, the way I worked with her was all my original exercise. There was nothing that I could go by and it was a great deal of success. So I just started on that path and I've been on it ever since. Fantastic. So you were a groundbreaker, yes. without a doubt, kind of a pioneer. Well, pretty, pretty much. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And yeah. You know, that's what a lot of people don't understand. You know, I'm 60 years old and I graduated in 85. Mm -hmm. And at that time, a lot of people didn't even know what physical therapy was. I, I would, mm -hmm. I went back to my five-year reunion and half the people there didn't even know. So yeah, oh. it was a, a field in its infancy when you were starting some of that stuff. I was 62 and I had a chance to study with the best, the two physicians that actually pioneered rehabilitation medicine, um, Dr. Rusk and um, Arthur Abramson were the two people. And um, Dr. Abramson was a uh, well, uh, an instructor of mine in PT school, and I worked at the Institute for Rehabilitation Medicine in New York City with Dr. Rusk. So I learned from the best, sure. from, from, the, from the pioneers in the field. Awesome. It was wonderful. Yeah, that's wonderful. terrific. Well, mm -hmm. why don't we get into it? This, we yeah, got sure. some questions. For, okay. These are questions I've gathered. A lot of them were from uh, people commonly asked questions from, from the layperson. So, oh, okay, yeah. Let's let's start off with uh, kind of if you want to talk about osteopenia and osteoporosis and maybe right. the key score. Okay, well, the the condition of osteoporosis and osteopenia uh, is basically the same. The two conditions. It's just a matter of bone loss. There's more bone loss that is picked up by a test called a DEXA scan. Uh, in osteoporosis than in osteopenia. Uh, and I like to say this because a lot of people with osteopenia think that they're relatively safe. They don't have to worry about things. In fact, people will say things like, well, I just have a little osteopenia in my left hip. And I have to say, well, there's no such thing as that because if you have it in the left hip, that's just the hip that they tested. 
you probably have bone loss in your right hip too, and you may have bone loss in your back. And that's, that's my area that I'm really concerned about. We do have protocols for hip fractures. Of course, we wanna prevent hip fractures. Um, however, there are really no good protocols for spinal fractures and they're much more numerous than, than hip fractures. So- um, <clears throat> I'm glad you clarified that because yeah. um, I was of the same mind. I thought osteopenia, you're safe. But yeah. I, I, I saw a research article too that said they're looking at the, uh, is it the trabeculae, the structure Trabecula, of the bone? Yeah, yeah and, the structure of the bone. And that's yeah. may, maybe more important. Well, yes, the DEXA scan, which is the, still the official diagnostic tool for this condition, measures bone quantity. But it is the bone quality that is turning out now to be more important. And the bone quality is the inner, internal architecture, the trabecular architecture of the bone, the, uh, the uh, mineral deposits in the bone. Um, and so it's the bone quality that, that according to the testing, there's a really good, and I have a copy of this on my computer that I can send to people. There's a really good research article uh, that lets a meta-analysis, which means that they look at a lot of other research articles and have a conclusion that bone quality is a standalone predictor of fracture risk. Bone quantity, the DEXA scan, is not a predictor of fracture risk because you can have fragility fractures. Those are fractures of minimal trauma that can occur in osteoporosis, osteopenia, and even in normal bone. Ah. So it's the quality of bone that makes the difference. Now, uh, not a lot of hospitals or, or testing centers are looking at bone quality. The test is called a TBS, trabecular bone score. And it is a software attachment to the DEXA scanner. So it scans the results of the DEXA scan, particularly the architecture of the bone, how the how the trabeculae are formed. You know, we have horizontal and vertical trabecular structures. And uh, then that's a measure of bone quality. That's part of bone quality. That's the only thing that's measured so far. So basically, so, if, if you have good architecture, you could have softer bones and your bones would, would be able to tolerate right. a fracture better. Right. Yes, because your bones, healthy bone, uh, is designed in a way to give under pressure. It's not, not to just oh, detract. I see. Interesting. So yes, and and so it's the architecture that turns out to be more important, especially in you know it's it's in the research, and as usual, you know change is slow. They're still using the DEXA scan as the uh, diagnostic sure. test. Mm -hmm. And the other thing about the DEXA scan is that it only looks at the lower back. The lumbar spine. Oh, I thought you said it did, went on the hip too sometimes? And the hip. And well, I'm talking about the spine, yes. Yeah. The, the, the hip and the lower spine. Most fractures occur in the thoracic spine. Right. Mm -hmm. That's the area between the shoulder blades, basically, uh, the mid to lower thoracic spine. But the TBS, trabecular bone score, um, uh, they have a number for that, so that, that, that they're looking at that also. There's also another test called a lateral vertebral assessment. 
where when you, it's also done on the DEXA scanner. And what they do is they take the scanning that, that goes over your body when they, when they look at your spine and your hips, and then they tilt it on its side and they run it up the lateral side, the side of your body, so that you can see the structure of the vertebral bodies all the way from T4 down to L5. Um, and for those of you who don't understand those sure. letters and numbers, that's your upper thoracic spine between your shoulder blades all the way down to your sacrum. So uh, it looks at the whole spine and you can see compression from a side view. You can see changes in the disc space and things like that in the lateral view. So there's three tests basically for this condition. And I, I really encourage people not to be satisfied just with the DEXA score because I'm not gonna say it's unimportant, but it's not as important as it has been, as we've been led to believe. We also have these other tests which give us more information. I think you made a really good point here though. Uh, you really can't rest easy if you have osteopenia by any means. No, you're, no. You're I think, yeah, in my seminars, I usually say that as therapists, therefore that we need to address uh, and th this condition to understand that even people with so-called normal bone can have fragility fractures. So that we wanna look at the, the way my program works is working on the muscles that support the spine. And so we need to, to do that no matter what the diagnosis is because it can happen to anybody. Sure. How, um, how often are you, do people, should they have a scan? And, uh, well, it depends. I have my own ideas on this. Medicare will pay for this test at the age of 65. I think 65 is way too late. Uh, I think that it would be good if people could get a scan, especially women, right around menopause, right after, because most bone loss occurs after menopause within the first five years. Um, and I would say whether the menopause is surgical or natural, that that would be sometime in that five-year period would be a good time to do uh, the testing. However, there's no insurance that will pay for that as far as I know. Um, maybe that will change uh, in years to come, who knows. Uh, but the tests are not that expensive. Um, and on, a, on a medical scale, they're not as expensive as some other- Right, it's know, all like relative. RI or something, you know, yeah. so yeah. So some people will pay for it themselves, I think. Uh, the, the, the age of peak bone mass, I mean, your maximum growth of bone is between 30 and 35, although you get about 98% of it by the time you're 19, but then you continue to grow more bone until you're in your thirties. So, uh, so I would say to wait until then, although I should mention here that babies are being born with osteoporosis. Oh my gosh. And is low birth weight, low birth weight is linked to fractures in old age oh, in God. the research literature. I mean, it, it's, it occurs in all age group, all genders, all ethnic groups, just about, you know, some people are more at risk than others. That, that is true. And it is the Caucasian postmenopausal thin boned asymptomatic woman that's still the major population. But the population of men is growing. So they have to be, you know, aware too. You know, sometimes, up, I, sometimes I look at some of the athletic injuries that I see from some, even elite athletes, and I sort of wonder uh, about their bone health. Basketball players. And, 
is the idea of the first scan to establish somewhat of a baseline? Yes, yes. So that you can kind of see if it's getting worse? Yes. Yeah. See, I've been diagnosed with osteoporosis. I didn't get a, an official um, diagnosis until I reached Medicare age. <clears throat> but I probably had it in my 40s because I had a spiral fibula fracture sure. when I was ice skating in, when I was 44. And I remember when the doctor was putting on the cast, he said, I don't know what it is with you women. You won't drink your milk. And I had no idea what he was talking about. You know, like, I thought I was pretty healthy. Actually, I was sure. running marathons. I was running marathons, you know, and at the age of 49, I became a competitive weightlifter and all this thing. And then I, at the age of 65, I was diagnosed with osteoporosis and I was just like everybody else in complete denial. Sure. No, 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 no. They got me mixed up with somebody else. Uh-uh. Well, you know, there it is. <laughs> now you've kind of touched on this a little bit. You started touching on it, it, you know, the common risk factors. You know, I find it interesting, you know, they don't pay for it until 65, but yet women are, I know everybody's at a risk, but women are at a higher risk yeah. from, from age 55 or a, actually after menopause, correct? Mm -hmm. so, yes, yes, that's the big, uh, that's the big change. So what are, yeah. are, there are some other common risk factors you want to talk about? Now you mentioned uh, Caucasian, well, is that age? Yeah, I'll, give, I'll give you the big, the big three is being a female, having a family history and being postmenopausal. Got it. Either natural or surgical. Got it. So anybody that's had um, sur uh, surgery, uh, then uh, they should, they should start to think about getting tested right after that. Sure. Uh, then uh, let me just, I'll, I'll just, I'm not going to go through the whole list because sure. it is quite a, quite a big, uh, quite a big uh, list. Uh, delay, the, one of the big ones also is a delayed puberty and uh, irregular menstrual, menstrual cycles in women and early menopause. So it's the time, it's the time element that, uh, because there's some uh, women and girls that don't start menstruating until they're 15 or 16 years old. And the average age I think now is 12 or 13. And if you're late with that, and then you have early menopause, that's a big risk factor. So, um, and then um, age, of course, increasing age, Caucasian or Asian people. And in men, particularly now, the, the, the data that I have, uh, the latest, uh, primarily over the age of 75, um, but I, but now I'm, I'm hearing about the possibility of a male menopause somewhere along the line, a hormonal change, ah. I don't, but I can't say that I know that much about that. Uh, so men are at risk, but just not as much. And then if a woman has had no children, there's something about childbirth, I guess that affects the hormones too, that. You're um, at more risk if you have children or less risk? If you know, if you have no children, you're, you're at less risk if you've had children. Oh, wow. I thought yeah. it was the other way around. Nope. I'm guessing nope. it relates purely to hormonal changes and it, all these. Right. Yeah, it's, it's called being uh, the, the the term is nulli paris. You know. Yeah. Having, yeah. Exactly. Yeah. Uh, having that. had no children. Multi paris or is. Yeah. Uh, so uh, that, then so those those kinds of things are non modifiable. You know sure. your family history being female and so on. Well, female sex changes. I don't know how that figures in. There's a lot of that going on now, and I have no idea how that would figure into it. Sure. Then you have the modifiable, modifiable, modifiable ones, and the top three, well, the top two are smoking and high alcohol, 
alcohol intake. Now you asked about caffeine, that's an ongoing discussion. There are some sources that say, yes, it could be. Others say, oh, don't bother with it. But I say anything in moderation. I drink one cup a day myself personally, but they say that if you have more than two to five cups a day, that could possibly be a risk factor. Sure. Caffeine, coffee, sedentariness, you know, not, not doing any sure. exercise. Makes sense. Uh, eating disorders is a big one. In adolescence in particular, a lot of women, uh, I don't know if that's still an epidemic, but it was for a long time, um, having eating disorders. Then there are, uh, I have probably about 30 different diseases and conditions that are risk factors. Um, I think I have it uh, alphabetical. And then there's also a huge list of medications. Of course, the big one is corticosteroids. Sure. Also, the medications used for organ transplant. Um, so like and, prednisone would be one that... Yeah, prednisone, big one, yeah. big one. That, I mean, that actually causes the condition. It's not just a risk factor. Um, so there are a lot of those. And I'll send you this list, too. And then, of course, then you have the first signs. The first signs are uh, having a minimal trauma fracture. And according to the research, any fall from a standing body height, no matter if you fall in the ice or the grass or the floor or the cement or whatever it is, if you have a fracture, that will be considered a fracture of minimal trauma. You should have the bones in your arm strong enough to catch yourself if you have to. Oh, that's interesting. So, yeah, I, you know, a lot of people disagree with that, but that's what's in the literature. So, so. like even a wrist fracture, you put your hand out. Yep. Even that would be considered uh, osteo. It's a, it's a fracture of minimal trauma. Sure. Yeah, sure. that's a first, a, a Collie's fracture is one of the big first signs. Yep. And uh, I actually, one, this one patient I told you I've been seeing for all these years, um, she just had a wrist fracture. Sure. And, and she had to have surgery because when I saw the x-ray, the, 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 the uh, ulna had split right in half. Oh, and so wow. she had to have a... Uh, so the Collie's so fracture for the layperson is also a wrist fractor, fracture. Yes, just so yes, aware. yes, yes. that's the first sign. That's the first sign. And I, loss of body height, you had asked about that. Yes, it did. I have searched and searched for to find if there's any number that's given, I never get one, but they do say that if you've lost two to two and a half or more inches of body height, that's probably an indication that you already have a fracture in your spine. So, so what, what, what she's referring to is your spine actually crushes down like a, almost a marshmallow. Right. That's a compression and, fracture. fracture. Yes. Yeah. And you can actually mm -hmm. lose height that way and yes that could be a silent fracture um yes in fact most compression fractures in the spine are silent up to 80 percent um and i keep checking that one because nobody believes it <laughs> you know, right. They, they, right well i i check it out in the research about every year i go to the world health organization and nih and oh and the osteoporosis foundation it's still the statistic 70 to 80 percent of the compression fractures in the back are silent that means that either the patient never felt anything or whatever they did feel wasn't enough to draw attention to the spine. So- um, And I've seen that very commonly in, in our patients where they do 
uh, an x-ray and they find the compression fracture, but they, they say it's an old one. So yes. that's not the current cause of yes. pain. That's so right. very, very common. And sometimes, you know, they'll have referred pain. I've had patients come in with pain right at the ziphoid process, right in, in the front of the chest at the lower breastbone. Right That'll be, yeah, right there. It'll be a, re, uh, a referred pain from a fracture in the back. So, um, so referring all the way around. Yes. And sometimes, well, sometimes it's just right there and sometimes it goes around the rib cage. So, sure. uh, and then of course, if the pain is around the rib cage, people look at the ribs. They don't look, they don't look right. at, at the spine to see. Yeah. So well, that's makes, a real issue. It makes that's sense. a real issue in exercise uh, because, you know, I've come across people who teach, you know, teach exercise and so on. And they do a lot of flexion, spinal flexion exercises like abdominal crunches, knee to chest, uh, bending over to touch your toes. All of those would be contraindicated because that type of a movement is usually involved in the fracture. And so that when I'm working with a patient, uh, even if I know that they have normal bone, then I will also caution them well, first of all, there is a wonderful research article you might want to take a look at. It was written in 1990. They looked at eight different abdominal exercises for strengthening of the basically the transversus abdominis. And they found <laughs> that the, um, the abdominal crunch was the least effective of the eight exercises in strengthening that muscle. So I read the article and I literally stood up and I said, yes, I never have to do another abdominal <laughs> I don't have to feel guilty about it either because it doesn't do what you think it does. I now, thought that was very interesting. You, so, with your yoga teaching, this has to be a real issue because there's a lot of yoga poses oh, that are yes. terrible. Oh, yes. Oh, yes. Yeah. I have a handout that I can also send to anyone that lists um, yoga poses uh, that are safe, ones they should use caution with, and ones that they should avoid. Oh, that's awesome. I'm going to get that from you myself. Do you mind okay. if we give your email right now, and then we'll also have it that's in fine. the description so, below. Let me, let me tell you what else I have. I have sure. a handout for yoga, Pilates, and the gym. Great. Okay. Great. Things that are okay, things to use caution, movement, and those to avoid. That's a gold mine right there. We got to do a whole video on that alone. Yeah. Uh, so her, <laughs> it's actually a, a, a different email here. Her name is Sarah Meeks, but the, the email is jharrison, J-H-A-R-R-I-S-O-N-2, the number two, the the number two. Mm -hmm. at earthlink.net, not .com, .net. And we'll have this down in the, the, the description below but this is a great way to get some materials. Um, she had the risk right. factors you could get to from you. Mm -hmm. yep. And uh, just yep. awesome. That's and then really the, other, the other thing that we were just talking about too was the first signs. And there are a list of first signs. And then also there are risk factors for fracture. Like, okay, here's one particularly for COVID. Uh, this I picked up a lot in COVID, but I knew this already. A history of a previous fracture. Fracture predicts fracture. Sure. Once you've had one, you're at increased risk for another. And I can tell you from what my experiences with my patient population, doctors don't tell that to anybody. 
because I've asked them. I said, does the doctor ever tell you that you're increased risk? At no. And I say, well, I, I say something, well, I'm not going to say you, uh, you, that, that you are going to have another fracture, but the statistics show that you're at increased risk. So it's more sure. important. <laughs> Even with hip fractures, I always do uh, give them the exercise on the opposite hip. Now, I know in today's world in PT, the insurance might not pay for that. So, but you could just, as a therapist, just say, okay, I'm going to give you these exercises here. And then I want you to, you could do, you could teach them on the other leg if you want to, and just not put it in your notes. But anyway, right. <laughs> so, but anyway, I always give them the exercises on the other leg too. The strengthening. For awesome. the stability exercises for the hip, just as we're, just to mention this, the gluteus maximus and the gluteus medius are the two most important to me. And Those you mentioned your butt you, muscles. Yeah. Yeah. Well, the gluteus maximus is. Yes. Yeah, and the one is on the <laughs> sidebar. Yeah. Right. Yeah. And um, uh, by the way, uh, can I just elucidate on that a little bit? Sure. There's an there's an exercise that, that I used to teach, and it was in my book, but I've taken it out of the book. It's called the gluteal squeeze. Like you squeeze your buttocks together. Well, what happens when you do that? you tend to target the external rotation of the hip, not the extension, which is what we want, right. more extension. And so instead of that, I do a groin squeeze and that gets the buttocks, it, you know, it, it gets the buttocks too. And because I'm after the extensor component of the gluteus maximus, I think it's the most important component, not the, not the rotation. Um, and so I, I don't do that anymore because, uh, if you do it, like if you were to stand up now and just squeeze your buttocks, you could feel that force that's kind of bringing your feet apart into rotation. I mean, it might not hurt anybody, right. but it's not what we're after. Not targeting the muscle we want to target. That's so right. now, um, I, we had this question on here, does osteoporosis present with pain? We've talked about a little about that, but I, you know, people always say, well, I have osteoporosis. That's why I have pain. And I'm like, and I'm yeah, glad well, you confer yeah. on this, that, that, that it, it isn't well, really true. Well, I would say that generally speaking, the condition of osteoporosis is silent until you have a fracture or sure. something that's, that's symptomatic. The pain in the back could be because of muscle weakness. One of the things that I found is that people have, and there's not another program that I know that focuses on the back extensors like I do. That's one of the prime areas that I want to get. My beginning exercises, we start with the, uh, usually start with the muscles between the shoulder blades. And then we do the head press, which in fact, I saw a video of you teaching that. Uh, Mackenzie's, you know, cervical yeah. retraction. Yeah. retraction. Only I do it in supine, so they have a resistance and they press right. their head against the resistance to get those muscles. And then I have an exercise called the leg press to get the lower. It has been shown in two uh, really respected uh, research studies by Dr. Marshi Sanaki at the Mayo Clinic. She's one of the big researchers. I used to work with her. Process. I'm sorry? I used to work with her. You used to work with her, okay, well, <laughs> yeah. I'm a podiatrist there. Um, I was. <laughs> I graduated from there. I was there for three years. Yeah, so. I think I, yeah, I think I, yeah, I think I read that, you know, with Dr. Mayo Kirby. Clinic. I met her. I went up there. I taught at Mayo Clinic once. Oh, you did? Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And um, <clears throat> uh, in any case, 
the, the research that's been done by her and some of her colleagues is the strength of the back extensors. The stronger those muscles are, you have a, um, you have a muscle that pre protects you from fracture. You have less fracture risk if you have those strong muscles, those back extensors. And I have not, not found any other routine that really focuses on that. And I focus on it a lot. Are you able to reverse osteoporosis at all? Well, uh, depends upon how you <laughs> identify reverse osteoporosis. You know, well, or osteoporosis. I mean, all right. when I when I was diagnosed, and then I was doing my program of exercise, and then um, I decided I wasn't going to change that. And then I also have a little unit called um, it's called low intensity vibration. It's called a Meridine unit. And that targets, and that's been known to increase bone strength because it targets, it goes deep into the body to the, to the, um, okay. <laughs> One word here with messing the- um, That's okay. Do you actually have a device- with, with, Within the bones. Yes, I have research. Dr. Clinton Rubin uh, is the researcher. Mm -hmm. What yes. is the device? What is it? It's called the Meridine, M-A-R-O-D-Y-N-E. Marrow for bone marrow and dine for small force. And the, the unit was uh, developed by Dr. Clinton Rubin, who is uh, on Long Island, the State University of New York. And uh, he does research under NASA grants because the issue of osteoporosis in astronauts is huge sure. and no. they're trying to find something to deal with that uh, as you lose the effect of gravity on your body. So is this something uh, you would go to a hospital to use or? Well, it's usually marketed for uh, personal use at home. It's a oh, small it thing. It looks, it looks like a bathroom scale. Oh, and, uh, you can look up the Meridine company. I will. I'll look it up. And if you're interested in talking to anybody, the best I'll tell you the best way to do this, because these people won't know you, but they know me very well. Sure. You send me an email and tell me you want more information on the low intensity vibration machine. Mm -hmm. And I will connect, I will forward your email to the people that will wonderful. Yeah. Yeah. I'd be very interested in taking a look at that. Yeah. So, so I was doing that plus my exercise program. I had my second DEXA scan. I gained 11% in the DEXA scan. I thought that was pretty oh, good nice. until I found, found out that the DEXA scan wasn't related to fracture risk. Right, anyway, right. you know, it still was kind of a positive thing. So you kind of talked a little bit of this already, but do you want to maybe expand on it is how to keep osteoporosis from worsening? Well, basically the, the best treatment or management of this condition is movement and exercise. Now, that can become a real issue with the physically frail individuals. These people recovering from COVID-19, for example, and, and others, but it's a sedentary lifestyle that is going, or a long-term bed rest that will lead to more bone loss. So uh, the way to the, the best way that the two forces on your bones that are important are muscle contraction and weight bearing forces. Now, weight bearing means bearing your weight through your bones. It doesn't mean going to the gym and lifting weights, sitting on a machine and, you know, kicking your legs up and like that. That's weight sure. training or weight lifting, but it's not weight bearing. 
But so some people think, well, you have to be on your feet, but that's not quite the case. Let's say that you're doing an exercise on your hands and knees while well, you're getting weight bearing through your arms. Sure. Okay. You can even get weight bearing on your arms through a wall pushup for starters. So you can take the weight bearing down to lower levels, but you want to have weight bearing on the bones because the loss of weight bearing by people in long-term bed rest is immediate within a week. You start to lose bone oh, wow. within a week. I mean, and the, some of these people, I just read somebody has been in, in on a ventilator since December. You know, oh, hospital gosh. So, you know, and she's at high risk for, for sure. this. You know, so, I, and I don't know if somebody's on a ventilator, uh, they don't, uh, the diaphragm is getting weaker. That's a, one of your key core muscles, the diaphragm. And <clears throat> so she's, she's losing bone. But on the other hand, the guidelines that I picked up in the research literature that you don't do exercise in that state when they're still on the ventilator. I, I mean, see. so... I don't know what the, <laughs> the answer is to that. You know, I, I really don't know. I, I need to call Clint Rubin. I, uh, I've met him several times. I've been in his lab, talked to him about this and so on. And um, by the way, I taught a webinar last night. You might want to get in touch with motivations and get, a, get it. I, I kind of explained some of the stuff in the webinar sure. too. Yeah. Um, uh, so muscle contraction and weight-bearing forces. How much... Do you have a sense of how much exercise is needed for the average person? I suppose it's going to vary depending on the age. And well, it it there's so many things that are uh, that come into that. Uh, the clinical condition of the patient, what other comorbidities they have, all that kind of thing. Uh, so um, uh, walking is good. I usually want people to be out walking. Uh, uh, and I say, they say, well, how far do I have to walk? And I say, well, think of it in terms of time and not distance. I'd say that 30 minutes to 45 minutes, if you can do that four days a week, you might be ready to advance on something else. I also, the research has shown that exercise for weight bearing needs to be um, uh, uh, random. Uh, they did a study on athletes and they found that the Athletes with the strongest bones in the hip were the high jumpers, of course, the, oh. of that kind. And then soccer and handball players, because they're, you know, they're having odd impact and sure. uh, as uh, in the sport, uh, the least effective exercise is swimming. Um, and yeah. that's followed closely by bicycling and then running. So running is not that good for building bones. And the reason is primarily because, uh, well, down here in the South, we call it same old, same old, you know, you go out for your run, you go on the same route with the same person at the same pace, you know, and you've got, yeah. got this monotonous thing. So you have to get, um, so we need to get uh, ideally random high impact on our bones for it to affect our bones. Now, not very many people get that kind of force on their bones. So what I do is let's say the person is walking and then they'll send me an email. I get a lot of people send me an email say, when can I start running? So I say, well, wait a minute, because the running is going to increase your weight bearing by seven times at least what you're already doing. That might be too much. I don't know. So I, I recommend walking poles. And there is a company, um, it's walkingpoles.com. Uh, they, they sell walking poles that are designed for the rehab market. 
and they're called Xer Striders. And so I have them get the Xer Striders and start to use, because basically what people are looking for is more of a cardiac effect of their exercise. And the poles will increase your heart rate by 10 to 15 points just by starting to move your arms with the poles as you walk. In addition, and then I, a little weight bearing through the arms then too. That's right, yeah. And then I, uh, <clears throat> I also teach people to walk backwards and sideways to try to get more random movement. Gotcha. Um, even homebound people. I mean, they can, they can use their kitchen counter to hold on to and walk, you know, just, just to get very, you want to get varying forces on uneven surfaces. Walk, go on a trail, walk on the grass is different than walking on the asphalt or the cement or concrete, whatever you want to call it. But anyway, um, so you want to, to me, variety is of exercise and movement is really key to stimulating the bone. If you do the same thing all the time, well, it'll stay the same. Sure, absolutely, it makes sense. But safety first, safety first. I don't want somebody to vote, say, oh, gee whiz, I've been walking on the street. I think I'm gonna get over on the grass and then they trip on a tree root or something. Right, I don't right, want right. them to do that. You know, it's safety first always. And they walk backwards walk. over a tree root. And walk backwards and forwards, make sure you watch where the cars are coming from. So you, you, know, you gotta go on the other side of the road. So, Some people actually don't even know what resistance exercises are. Can you talk to those about well, those? Like you can use body weight as resistance or weight. You know, you can have weights that would be resistance, or you can use your own body weight for resistance, such as in exercises called the planks. So I want to encourage people to be up and active. And um, even I can start the program, the Meeks Method, in a recliner chair. I can start it in the ICU because I can step it. I, I have a philosophy of stepping down, not always stepping up an exercise program. You've got to get to the point where people can do the exercise and that's where you start. So I can meet people in ICU. I can meet people at home care and there, I've done a lot of work and people have uh, done a lot of home care, uh, people in recliner chairs. Um, so I can, I can adapt wherever I meet the person. And so I don't want people to get the idea that they wanna go for a walk now and start walking, uh, go on a trail in the woods and get lost or, you know, sure. fall or something like that. So All I right. always want them to be safe. Yeah. Now you, you mentioned uh, back extensors is one of the most important uh, yes. muscles, but you also mentioned the diaphragm. How does the diaphragm come into play? Well, the diaphragm acts as a stabilizer for movement of the upper extremities. Uh, this is work done uh, by uh, Paul Hodges down in Australia. He placed uh, wire electrodes into the diaphragm muscle and measured the contraction of the diaphragm. When, when you just bring your arm overhead or you know, lift a weight or whatever, whatever you do, you're using the upper part of your body, the diaphragm contracts about about 30 milliseconds before you move. So the diaphragm uh, contracts to stabilize your upper body. So, and I've, uh, there is a therapist who gives webinars with um, motivations. Uh, her name, her first name is Nina. Oh, it's an, she's an Indian gal. And she has, you know, I've spent 30 some years in osteoporosis. She spent 25 on just the diaphragm. 
Wow. Studying the diaphragm. So the diaphragm has, diff has different excursions depending upon positioning. It has the most excursion in supine and the least in sitting. So I- is lying on your back for people who that's don't right. know. Yeah, that's right, lying on your back. I also do diaphragmatic breathing and breath exercises on my side in prone position. Uh, prone position is really good because that's used in COVID patients to cleanse the spine, you know, to, uh, the, the, verta, the, um, the lungs, the lungs, right. it's a uh, postural drainage. And so also doing the diaphragm exercises in all different positions. And in each position, the diaphragm has a different excursion. That's, I think that I thought that I, that was something new for me. Interesting. I didn't know that. Um, <laughs> let's, let's switch it up a little bit here. Let's yeah, okay. You know, let's talk about stretching. What uh, well, yes. are important? Uh, the, the muscles usually, I don't know, I, I, I have what's called the patterns of postural change or what happens to people as but not because they age. Most of the muscles that start to get restricted in your body are the flexor muscles, your pectoralis major, your latissimus dorsi, uh, then the, uh, that's not really a, a flexor necessarily, but it's also a rotator, an, uh, an internal rotator of the shoulder and that's the problem there. But the hip flexors are the big ones. Um, now, I don't think that the psoas is that much involved uh, because it really, um, uh, it, it, I think it has more problems. It's, you know, it's a stabilizer of the lumbar spine for movement. Um, but I think that the two primary ones, the iliacus, which is, of course, connected with the psoas, and then also the origin of the rectus femoris. And then the muscles behind the knee, the insertion of the hamstrings and the origin of the gastrocnemius. Um, a lot of people do straight leg raisings to stretch the, ha the hamstrings, but I've found in my patient population anyway, particularly people who've had postural change, it's the muscles that are flexing the knee, posterior, the posterior muscles that need to be addressed to really get the whole muscle. Is that throwing their balance off or why are you concerned about that? Oh, I think so too, yes. Sure. Well, you'll see a lot of people with postural change walking with bent knees. Sure, oh, yeah. yeah, absolutely. So yeah, mm -hmm. that is one they miss. So mm -hmm. you mentioned about running. Mm -hmm. you, again, you, is it safe for a, a, someone who has osteopenia or osteoporosis to even run? Well, this would, this would be my guideline. Okay, because I never can guarantee 100% safety for anything. I don't know what they're going to do or how they're going to run or where they're going to run right, or right. what they're going to think they can do or whatever. So uh, I want to have, if I'm, if I'm seeing a patient with osteoporosis, I want to be seeing that patient for six to eight weeks. By that time, they've learned more body awareness. They know how to breathe better and they may be ready to start some running. And I always caution, I don't, you know, if I'm seeing them personally, I'll, I'll probably know if they are or not. Uh, and I want them to maintain upper body alignment, you know, not bending forward. You'll see a lot of people running like that. Yes. They have to be yeah. able to maintain the, the, uh, the alignment of the body. And, and so I've, I've actually coached a lot of people. I'm not a running coach, but I, if they have osteoporosis, I can do that. Uh, but I want them to go through that 
that six to eight week period on my program so they're more stable. I usually focus on stability first, not stretching, but more stability. At, you, you'll see when you get the realignment routine what I mean. And then uh, we can move into the running. Now, before I would move into running, I would uh, suggest that they walk do the pole walking because that will give them more cardiac and then they'll be ready for the running. Gotcha. Now, now you're, you're talking to somebody who's done four marathons too. So, you know, I know a little bit about running. <laughs> I actually got coached. Yes. Really? Wow. Yeah. What? Now, I know we had this in a different section, but I'm going to mention the jumping because um, you ever see that mentioned so often in, in the in the media that, oh, that yes. jumping may be good for osteoporosis. Yes. Well, you'd better know the condition of the patient first before you do that. That because the jumping is going to have is going to be more velocity, more force that, you know, people can have fractures by sitting down in a chair too hard, sure. okay? They can have fractures by rolling over in bed, reaching over, these are true stories, reaching over the kitchen counter to get a piece of toast out of the toaster, opening a window, closing a window, sneezing, coughing. I mean, you have to know what the condition of the patient is before you have them jump. Now, the research has shown in athletes that the jumpers have the highest bone development, okay? Because that is a harder, force. Makes sense. So there is a little exercise, which I'll do right now, and you'll see how my body moves. I call it bump, bump. It's actually not my original. Okay. Another therapist came up with this. Um, and basically what you do is you stand and I would always have them make sure that they can hold on to something just in case when they're first learning it. And then you raise up on the ball of your foot and then you just go bump, 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 bump. bump. You're just up and down with your heel. So you're getting the and then, and you do it at random times. You know, I'll do it after I finish washing the dishes, after I finish brushing my teeth, after sure. you know, things like that. I just do a couple of bump bumps because the more random movement you can have, the better it is for your bones. So you just kind of make it part of your daily routine. I mean, yeah. Yeah. Sure. awesome. I do that with breathing exercises in the morning when I'm finished brushing my teeth and, you know, putting on some face lotion and whatever. I don't do much, but anyway. Well, but then I do a couple of breathing exercises. So I kind of fit it in. Sure. You know, I do bump, bump in Publix. <laughs> I mean, who cares? they probably think I'm crazy, but I don't care. <laughs> Blood lots too. Yeah. Um, let's, let's make this our final question. Um, sure. Do you have anything for patients who are worried about their balance? Um, do you have any oh, yes. The CD, do you know, are you familiar with the CDC study program? I am not, no. You're not. Well, the, the CDC, you want to look it up, yeah. the study program, you start with having, with seeing if people can stand on two feet without holding on to something, okay? And so I usually let them get whatever base of support they need. Some people need a little wider. And then the first test on the study is to bring your feet close together, touching and let go. And if they can hold that balance on two feet, now this is for people in the hospital, people just recovering from COVID, you know, you're more physically frail individuals. But I've had patients come in to see me as an outpatient and they couldn't do this. They couldn't stand with both feet together like that for 10 seconds. And then what you do is semi-tandem. So this is starting from a low level, okay? 
So you put your uh, heel of one foot in, in the arch of the opposite one. Uh, yeah, in the, no, in the arch, not, 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 yeah. not with a foot in front, but then you do a full tandem. And you want to oh, test sure. on both sides. You want to test on both sides because they'll t they'll tend to stand on their stronger leg just automatically. That's the way the body body works. Now, <clears throat> if you have somebody on a walker uh, or somebody in a parallel bar, you know. <laughs> so what I'll have them do is hold on and then start to let go with one hand, let go with the other hand. I used to do this on the treadmill because a lot of people are gripping the treadmill too much when they're on the treadmill. Say, well, just try letting go with one hand and then let go with the other hand and then eventually and slow down. You know, you're not getting any, well, you may get more cardio by running faster, but if you're holding on, you know, and then you're hunching your shoulders and you hold on, yeah, I see it all the time in the gym. So, um, so, so I started a really low level. And then after they can do the study test, stand with the feet tandem, one in front of the other, then we work on standing on one leg because the better you can stand on one leg, which I'm doing now, okay, the better you can walk. You have to stand on one leg to put the other one forward or backward, whichever way you're going, sideward. So um, those are the kinds of things that I do for balance. Now, I know that a lot of people do balance on balance boards and things like that, but I would rather start, let's see how stable they are first without a rocking board underneath their feet. Sure. Let's see if they can stand on their feet with, yeah, just stand on their feet, you know. Makes sense. So, yeah, yeah. Well, Very, important. Very important. I'm sorry? So people can look that up, CDC yeah. STEADY program. STEADY, S-T-E-A-D-I. STEADY. Oh, I, okay. Yeah, I. Yeah, STEADY. Okay. CDC STEADY program. Thank you very much. It's a much. free download. It's a free download from CDC. Well, what we're going to do now is we're going to stop at this point, but we're going to mm -hmm. resume this at a later date.